My name is Adrienne Cayley, and uh, I was asked to share my Team World Vision story. I was also warned that they would show a video that might make me emotional, and it did. So, just a sec here. Um, when I was in college, I had the opportunity to um, take a semester off and move to the West African country of Burkina Faso. And I spent six months there as a poli-sci major working in a rehabilitation center for malnourished children. Um, while I was there, we treated uh, probably about 100 kids in that six months that had been faced with a variety of challenges, but it all ended up in them being very ill, and, um, and some of them died. But our clinic... Um, we had our own well of, for clean water. And we were able to use that water to help nurse a number of them um, back from, from death, to, or for almost death, to, um, to full health again. Partway through my time in Burkina, we had a massive flood in our village. And um, the, we did not realize, but the well became contaminated. And all of us fell sick. And um, I was very ill myself and um, lost an incredible amount of weight in a very short period of time, and as well as the children and some of the other healthcare workers that were working there. Thankfully, because we were um, a project that had funding, we had transport, we were able to get help for everybody, and we were all able to get well. But that's not the reality for many of the um, people living in Africa in these rural villages. One of Team World Vision's sayings is that water is life. As I saw during my time in Burkina Faso, without clean water, things can move quickly from health to sickness and even to death. I I had the means to get the help I needed and get help for the people that I was working with. We had the money for medicine and we had transportation. Not everybody has that. For the last five years, the bridge has raised up a team of people to run or walk in the Eau Claire races to raise money for, to build wells. Our family has been able to be part of that for the last five years, and it has meant a tremendous amount to us. It's a very personal race for each of us. For us, it's a step of faith. At the beginning, it was the faith to, to sign up for a race that I didn't know if I could finish. I signed up The first time I did it, I signed up for the half marathon, and I hadn't run more than a couple miles <laughs> So it was a big risk, and I know some others of our team this year made that same risk. They're signing up for a 5K or a half marathon or a marathon, having never run that distance before and no idea if they'll cross the finish line on May 1st. I think they will, but I know there are probably some doubts in their mind even today. Um, For others, and what it became for us um, later on as a family, is an act of faith, a step of faith in fundraising, in um, Trusting in the Lord to bring in more money than we think that we can raise on our own. And saying, you know, this is so important to our family to bring this clean water. That we're going to take a step of faith and and dream big. And um, trust the Lord to provide. But why? Why are we doing that? Why is each member of the Bridges um, team doing that? It's for the same reason that you and I are here this morning. It is for the gospel. Water is life. It is immediate life for the physical body, but it can also lead to eternal life for the soul. When a child receives access to clean water, they live. I've seen it happen. Hopefully they will even thrive, and chances are better that they will receive some education. And every day they are alive, they have another opportunity to hear of Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf. And to learn about the water that only Jesus gives, which will bring them eternal life. Water is life. I often stand up here with my other hat as being a member of the missions team. And we share and we pray for our missionaries as they work throughout our town and share the gospel in our world. And sometimes it's easy to think that that's their job. That's what they do. And, that's, um, and so we're off the hook. But we believe that all are called to share in the gospel and to share the gospel with others. And for each Team World Vision member, this step of faith is demonstrating their desire to see the gospel shared throughout the nations. And this is what they believe God has called them to do here and now, to see that gospel move throughout Africa. 
We are asking you as a church body to come alongside my family and many families. It's so exciting this year to see how many families are doing this and to help us as we bring clean water to, to Africa. Would you first please consider praying for our team? Pray for good health. It's late in training. Injuries are frequent. And pray for boldness as they approach friends and um, family to raise the funds to bring clean water. Please encourage, secondly, if we can encourage them in their training. It's hard. The weather, I don't know. It's icy one day. It's 80 the next. It's tough. Um, It's Wisconsin. (laughs) Um, But just that they would be encouraged in these long miles that they're running, and it's sometimes lonely. And a lot of them are balancing work and family and runs. Thirdly, we have the two water stations on the route if um, we need people to help on the day of the race doing that. And fourth and, um, is to donate to the run. Uh, you can donate to the, the team run. You can donate to an individual. And it all goes to bring water to Africa. And the, one, the most important thing to remember is though we're not necessarily seeing it happen, with each cup of clean water that comes from one of these wells, we are helping to share the gospel with somebody who may have never heard. Thank you. Thank you, Adrian. How many people here are running or walking this in the marathon and all the, sh- the shorter races, half marathon, all of the races? On okay, okay, everybody, see those people. If you would like to contribute to their cause, just talk to one of them. It's something you can do online. Thank you. Uh, I think it's fifty dollars will provide water for a, to a child for life. It's a pretty easy thing. And that just goes to, straight to Team World Vision. It doesn't come through the bridge at all. But uh, it's pretty exciting. I think the city of Eau Claire last year raised over $70,000. Uh, and the bridge has had a really key role in that year after year. And uh, so uh, please consider that. Um, and, hey, we do need people for water stations. See, we planned the whole weekend. We've got lots of people participating in the races. And then uh, no church on Sunday morning, so you can be there. So you can support our runners. You can support them. Uh, we need, need you at water stations. We have one for student ministries has, has one, and we need help there. And we have one at uh, the five-mile mark, and that's where I'm going to be. And that's, that's a huge... Uh, uh, water station, lots of really fast um, people coming through all at the same time. That's where you need lots of hands to serve. Um, so that's in two weeks. Don't come here in two weeks on Sunday morning. We won't be here. Yesterday was touched twice, and uh, we had like 35, 36 volunteers there from the bridge uh, serving and for that, I just want to thank you. I'm really grateful for um, the time that you would take because it was a significant day. It took a significant amount of time out of your schedule. This was a, an outreach from growth groups, and um, here's what was accomplished. There were uh, 76 chiropractic visits. So we were coming together with other churches and uh, serving our community. 52 eye exams, 208 face paintings. Must have been some kids there. Twelve people for foot care, fifty for the free medical clinic, 112 haircuts, or 829 meals were served, 22 medical visits, 86 oil changes, 65 family pictures, photography, 36 blood pressure checks, 33 glucose and cholesterol checks, 78. spiritual conversations with advocates, and 92 exit survey spiritual conversations. So good job. Thanks for serving. Um, think about this, whether it's Team World Vision, uh, whether it's Touch Twice. Um, when we serve God and we do good things, good deeds, good works, we uh, create a platform. We, 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 uh, we produce, it creates goodwill in our community. And it creates a platform to share the good news about who Jesus is. That's why we do it, because we care. Bridge Kids, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for worshiping with us.
you now are free to harass or help your Bridge Kids leaders, help them grow as Christ followers. The book of Acts is a story of how the church got its start. Before the book of Acts, there was no church. Sometimes people just don't realize that. Jesus is the one who founded the church. Jesus is the one who built his church. He's still building it today. Um, And he started it from heaven. He didn't start it while he was here. He started it after he left, after the resurrection, after the ascension. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection. On the first day of the church, in Acts chapter 2... Peter got up and preached his first sermon to this group, and 3,000 people were saved, responded uh, to the message of the gospel by faith. Throughout the book of Acts, Luke, the author of the book, uh, gives summary accounts of what's happening. He gives updates as the progress of the gospel moves through the book of Acts. And... uh, Just going to go back and review a couple of those for us. For example, do you remember in Acts chapter 2? We're going to be in Acts 6 this morning, so you may want to find the book of Acts. Right now in Acts chapter uh, 2, for example, verses 44 through 47, all the believers, this is the first 3,000, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. I think that was the goodwill that was happening. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, and I think the good news was being shared. Acts chapter 4, we go to verses 3 and 4 as the gospel continues to unfold. Remember, this is opposition. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The church is on the move. The church is expanding. Uh, Difficulties are being faced. Problems arise. But the church keeps moving because God keeps moving. Chapter 4 and verse 32 All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed. So this is Luke's uh, sort of summary. He sort of tells the story and then stops and says, okay, here's where we are. All the believers were with one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. And... um, We see the church. We see uh, God at work through his church. Chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Little summary account. The apostles performed, verse 12, many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless... More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And God just continues to bless the work of his church. The church faced many obstacles. It continued to grow. Today in chapter 6, the church faces a new challenge and ongoing opposition. But God has not stopped and the church continues to move and advance his kingdom. So now we're going to look at chapter 6. We're going to begin with verses 1 through 7. Please look at the scripture with me. This is where we start this morning. Chapter 6 and verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, still happening, the Grecian Jews, among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. 
We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So we pick our story up in Acts chapter 6. A new challenge is being faced. It is a, phys- it is a challenge with physical needs, and it is a challenge of relational Conflict. People's needs were not met. Some people's feelings were hurt. Some people were offended. It happened in Acts chapter 6. It happens in the church today. It happens in life. Challenges, conflict, being offended, having our feelings hurt. So we start with conflict from within the church. On your outline, I encourage you to follow on your program. There's an outline and... Uh, The facts are, those who take notes have increased learning. So this is an inside challenge. We have challenges from outside and challenges from within side. This is in the church and facing the leadership challenge. In those days, verse 1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, so we've seen that, there's been growth, and it just keeps moving. And now we have two groups, the Hellenistic Jews... I've been reading from two different international versions. The Hellenistic Jews, among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because there were widows, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. And widows didn't have, they didn't have a social security. And some of those widows didn't even have family in Jerusalem to care for them. There's a huge number of people coming to faith in Christ. We're talking about thousands of people. Now, the last number we looked at was 5,000 men, and that, that would have uh, did not include children and women, okay? And uh, one scholar estimates that the church is now at least 25,000 people. That may be high. I don't know. We don't know the exact number, but it's a huge group of people that require care. Two groups, Hellenistic Jews, Hebraic Jews. We are in Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish world. It's where the temple is, where the only place on earth where the temple is to exist, where there is a unique worship of God in that place. It's the only place where animal sacrifices uh, were required to take place. Hellenistic Jews, some of you know from history that Hellenized, Hellenistic, refers to a Greek context. Um, Hellenistic Jews originated from outside of Israel. Think of them as Jewish people who lived outside of the nation of Israel. They spoke Greek as their main language because Greek was the lingua franca of the ancient world. That means it was spoken all over throughout the Roman Empire, not Not Latin, but Greek was the main language. And these Hellenistic Jews came to Jerusalem to live in their latter years, some of them, because they look forward to a time, when I die, I want to go, I want to go back to Jerusalem. I want to go to be with God's people when I go to heaven. And a lot of people came back to Jerusalem in their latter years as pilgrims. And they just tried to find a way to hang out and to make ends meet. And then there were uh, other Jewish people from around the Roman Empire that came to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage to the temple. They just came for a festival. They came to worship. And they just happened to be there on Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the church got its start, and Peter got up and preached. Some of them responded on that day. And then some of them were just continually in Jerusalem, and they just kept hearing. They were there because their hearts were seeking after God, and there were people explaining the Old Testament and explaining about the Messiah and explaining who Jesus was. A lot of them came to faith. 
So these Hellenistic Jews came to Jerusalem. They had major exposure to the Greek culture and the Greek way of life because they didn't live in Israel. They didn't live in Jerusalem. And they, they were exposed to wherever they were from. But these also were religious Jews in their faith. So they believed in the Old Testament. They believed in God, the God of the Bible of that time, the Old Testament. And so that's who they are. Then we have the other group, and they're Hebraic Jews. They're Jewish Jews. They are from the land of Israel. They spoke Aramaic as the main language, like Hebrew. Aramaic was spoken in the first century. That's what Jesus spoke, Aramaic. He could speak Greek as well. They live in Jerusalem or they are from the nation of Israel. They worship at the temple on a regular basis, meaning a few times a year at least. They rejected, here's the key, they rejected other cultures and as a way of life. People who did not follow Jewish customs were sort of like, you know, you're, I know you believe in the same God we do, but you don't really, you're not really on the same level of us. That was a danger for the Jewish people from Israel, that the danger of pride creeping in. They were religious Jews in their faith, like the Hellenistic Jews. And now they've become Christians, apparently. The problem is the Hellenistic Jews have complained against the Hebraic Jews because apparently the Hellenistic Jews, the widows, are not being treated fairly. And somehow the uh, Hebraic Jews are getting better treatment. The widows are getting better treatment. And uh, this isn't good. This is a problem. There's complaining going on. And the Hebraic Jews have a little bit of a uh, superiority complex. You know, God probably likes us better than he likes you kind of thing. Maybe it was a blind spot for them. I don't know. But it happened. And uh, so the Hellenistic Jews are treated with less importance somehow, whether it was a mistake, whether it was intentional, it's not clear. Verse 2, we see uh, setting a leadership priority. And one of the things, it's almost like Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, is t- the way Luke records it is so that leaders will get this. So there is a little bit of a focus on leadership here in my thinking. It, there's applications for all of us. But he, he's focusing on how the leaders deal with this. So setting a leadership priority, verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Firsthand, it may look like, well, they think they're too good to serve. And, you know, Jesus was all about service. Yes, he was. But I want to give the apostles credit here because they see a higher priority. They see their mission. They understand their mission. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And that's what they're going to do. They're going to proclaim the good news and tell people about who Jesus is. And now, now there's a problem. And it's important. And it needs to be addressed. The apostles understand this. The, the twelve. That, the twelve are... Just let me remind you, the twelve. Because maybe you've not heard the twelve. The twelve would be originally the twelve disciples of Jesus. Judas has betrayed Jesus. Judas is dead now. Judas has been replaced by Matthias. So now we're back to the number of 12. They are the apostles. And they gather with the rest of the disciples in verse 2. And they say it's not right for us to neglect the ministry of the word. In order to wait tables. So they recognize that the Hellenistic Jewish widows need fair treatment. And they need their proper food allowance. Because you have people here who don't have a financial income. And the church is taking this responsibility to care for them. The apostles recognize how large their leadership task is. They could try to handle it themselves. You know, we're going to do the ministry of the word. We're going to do the tables. We're going to wait on tables. And, you know, waiting on tables, it wasn't just, okay, we're going to wear a white shirt and black pants, put on a white apron. We're going to go out and serve the food. No, 
Think about this. There were thousands of people in Jerusalem. There were a lot of financial resources involved in this. Remember the people brought their money and gave them to the apostles? These, uh, what, what they're about to do, waiting on tables, was handling a large amount of funds, purchasing a large amount of food, and seeing that this large amount of food was distributed to thousands and thousands of people. That's the concept of what it means to wait on tables. Um, the, the apostles know they have responsibility of the teaching of the word, and they're going to choose that as a priority. So what they're going to do is they're going to end up delegating uh, responsibility to another group. Um, verses 3 and 4, they delegate their leadership responsibility. Brothers and sisters, verse 3, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. I don't know why they chose seven. There's some opinions about why seven was chosen. I really don't know. But the apostles delegate the selection of seven leaders to the congregation. The apostles require that these men have spiritual qualifications. They must be full of the Holy Spirit. Not just indwelled by the Spirit. The Spirit lives in everybody who places their faith in Jesus Christ but they must be full of the Holy Spirit. And the concept is, like Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.18, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Every believer uh, is instructed, it's a command, to be filled. We're all supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, the leaders here want to make sure that this group of leaders they're delegating to definitely have that character. They have a, they have a track record. They, they are walking with Christ. They're demonstrating Christ-like behavior. They're demonstrating walking in what we would call the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what they're, uh, this is the kind of men they are to choose. Men who demonstrate love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's the kind of leader we want. High qualifications. They're also supposed to be full of wisdom. Wisdom in the Old Testament has the idea of it's the art of skillful living. It's the ability to apply uh, truth in life. And we, they needed men who can understand the principles of Scripture and apply them in a daily situation. And when you think about this, this is way more than just taking care of the food bill, isn't it? It's about dealing with people. People in conflict. You need some godly leaders to step up here and fill this role for the church. And so uh, the apostles say, we will turn this responsibility over to them, to the seven. It's going to be delegated to seven new leaders, verse 4. And we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So the apostles are going to make sure they continue a priority of focusing on prayer and focusing on the ministry of the Word of God. Teaching, the, you know, remember they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Because they don't have a New Testament yet. The, the apostles are those leaders who can teach what Jesus uh, taught and teach it with authority. And so they, they need to stay on task. And they get this. They also want to focus on prayer. I'll tell you, when I was... Preparing this, I was just really reminded how important prayer is. And, you know, I, f- I just find it easy to teach, and I love to teach. I, it's hard work to pray. And yet, that's the power in the church, is when people pray. This is for all churches, this, this, this whole idea of the devotion to prayer and to ministry of the word. Uh, verses 5 and 6, identifying the leadership authority. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose, and here we have a list. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. See, Stephen has godly character, and he fits. Um, and Luke has a way. We've seen it. He just did it with Barnabas in chapter 4. Um, he has a way of introducing a character, and then you're going to hear more of the character later. Stephen is first on the list here. There's seven. Stephen is first. Why? He's introducing a very important character. We're going to see him in chapter 6 
And we're going to see him in all of chapter 7. And then there's Philip. And Philip is an evangelist. And he's not just somebody who waits on tables. He's a godly leader, and he's going to lead people to Christ, and he's going to appear in, in uh, chapter 8 in a very significant role. And then we have five more, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch. Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism, may have been a Gentile. He, he's a Hellenistic Jew because he converted to Judaism and he has the Greek background. He could have been a Gentile. It's not clear. But one of the things uh, we know is that these are all Hellenistic names. What have the apostles allowed? They have allowed the Hellenistic Jews to appoint Hellenistic leaders to take care of the problems in their community. Rather than having Hebraic Jews tell everybody what to do. Verse 6, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. This was like a commissioning service, so to speak. Laying hands, when the apostles uh, put their hands, perhaps on kneeling men, putting on their hands on their shoulder or some kind of laying on their hands, uh, they're recognizing that these are men who will carry on the work. These are men who will represent the, the ministry of the apostles, that they're representing Christ and they're representing the leadership of the church. And the uh, apostles are delegating authority to them. You now have authority to lead. And we're backing you. We support you. We're on your team. I don't think there was any magic exchange when they t- laid hands on them. I don't think there was any unusual power exchanged. It was just a recognition that, that these men were standing for Christ and serving Christ. Verse 7, refocusing the leadership mission. So what happens? Verse 7, so the word of God spread. This is Luke's little summary statement here. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. So Acts 1.8, Jesus told Peter and the apostles, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And I think we could argue well that that's an outline to the whole book. And we are still in Jerusalem, and the church is increasing. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and then look what happens. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Uh, This is amazing. A large number of priests. A large number of priests were required to serve in Jerusalem at the temple. Thousands were in support around Israel, and they came to Jerusalem at certain times on certain watches so they could step up and serve at the temple. And it was a great honor to serve at the temple in Jerusalem as a priest. Now, do you remember that the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas, are Sadducees, which is very sad. And they don't believe in miracles. And they don't believe in angels. And they don't believe in the resurrection. Remember that? So these are the lead model examples of the priesthood, the high priest. And you got all these lowly priests who are just ordinary priests. You know what? They believe the Bible. They, they've been honestly... Searching after God. They they don't understand all of the politics going on in Jerusalem. They just know that God is important. Their role in serving is important. They know a lot about the Old Testament. And things have made sense to them. And one by one, these priests who happen to be in Jerusalem during during this time are coming to faith. Go on to verses 8 through uh, 15. And uh, the final section, conflict from outside. So we've seen the conflict from within, the problem between the um, Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. And now the opposition continues from the outside in the form of persecution. Verse 8, we've seen the persecution before. 
Now Stephen, a man full of... So remember, Luke's already introduced Stephen as a main character. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power. You just have this idea. Luke just has this really high opinion of Stephen. Here's a godly man. I think one that we would all like to meet. Um, He was full of God's grace, God's favor, and God's power. And he performed great wonders and signs among the people. Huh. This is what the apostles did. You know, Jesus did the miracles. And Jesus delegated his authority to the apostles in this very unique role. And now, um, the apostles have delegated authority to these seven. And Stephen comes right out of the chute, demonstrating God's grace and God's power in a very unique way. Now, let me just step back and remind us of something that's really important. There are times in history when God has used miracles. Sometimes the word signs is used. Uh, signs are, they, they point people to things. They're miraculous. They're attention getters. There's a purpose to them. And if you look throughout history, we, we see it in Moses and Elijah and Elisha, and we see it in the life of Jesus, and we see it in the apostles. That God has a purpose, and the purpose is to authenticate his message and his messengers. When he's out to do something new and bring change, He gets attention of his people, and he draws attention to the spokesman, the messenger. And that's exactly what God's doing with Stephen. Verses 9 and 10, opposition to God's servant, opposing God's servant. Verse 9, opposing arose, opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen. We've never heard of this group before. From the members of the synagogue of the freedmen. Of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. Here's some people who don't like Stephen. Now, why is that? Here's what I know about the synagogue of freedmen. The synagogue of freedmen refers to a group of Jewish religious people who had been slaves in other countries in the Roman Empire, and they had somehow gained their freedom. We don't know anything about this. They had gained their freedom, and they had come to Jerusalem to live because people are attracted to come to Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. That's where you can be close to God because God is present at the, present at the temple. And so they come to Jerusalem, but they're Hellenistic Jews. They're not the same as the insiders. And they form their own synagogue because they're like-minded. They have a like experience. A synagogue would be uh, whenever there were 10 males in a community gathered. They, they were to come together for worship. And um, here's a, a group of like-minded people who formed their own synagogue. Sort of, like a, sort of like a church, a gathering. And they also ended up with buildings. A synagogue as a building. But it was, it was primarily about the people who were gathered. Um, so there's opposition to Stephen. And these are Jews. They're from Cyrene and Alexandria. That's Africa. And they're from Asia. They're not from Jerusalem. They're not from Israel. And they are very protective about their Jewish faith. And they see Stephen, Stephen as a threat, as an outsider, as somebody who's attacking the main uh, Jewish faith. And they resent that greatly. So they argued with Stephen. And uh, they don't want this religious Christian outside message to uh, hurt the pure Jewish faith. Verse 10, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. They couldn't stand up. God was supporting Stephen. God was giving Stephen wisdom and answers to these arguments. And the opposition struggled against God and his spirit. Verses 11 through 14, there are false accusations. Uh, Then uh, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against the law. So this is an act of deception. This this group, uh, they do this in secret. They create some trumped up charges against Stephen, uh, 
of false uh, against Moses. Now, when, when you say Moses, that means the law of God in the Old Testament. 613 commands refer, referencing the Jewish faith. And so they believe Stephen is attacking Moses, speaking blasphemy, blasphemy about Moses and blasphemy about God. It's not true. Verse 12, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. It can be pronounced Sanhedrin as well. Either way, you're right, okay? So I've done it both ways. I just want you to know I'm right both times. (laughs) So where have we seen this before? They stirred up the people. Where did we see that? And they brought, the, they brought Stephen to the elders, the teachers of the law. And they brought him before the Sanhedrin. Where have we seen that? That's what they did with Jesus. It's exactly what they did with Jesus. They created, they trumped up charges. They brought charges against Jesus that were false. And they brought him to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin are the 70, the ruling council in Jerusalem, the most powerful group in the world if you're a Jewish person. Okay. Verse 13, they produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place, that means the temple, and against the law. So they bring false witnesses, just like they did with Jesus, and uh, have false accusations. Verse 14, we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple. And change the customs Moses handed down to us. Well, what do you think of that? Jesus wanted to bring change. But this is a misinterpretation of Jesus and a misinterpretation of Stephen. Jesus did teach that there would be a fulfillment of the old covenant by his death and his resurrection. People didn't understand that. And did, Jesus did teach his followers that one day the temple would be destroyed. That, in fact, is true. But they they make Stephen sound like he's a rebel and a revolutionary, and he's going to overthrow everything in Jerusalem. That's not his intention. Stephen has a very peaceful intention just to share the good news. Hey, Jesus died for you. He wants to forgive your sins. He wants to bring you into a right relationship with God. And then we see verse verse 15, very last verse, responding like Christ. What a way to go out. What a way to end. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Remember the Sadducees? This is the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees, the high priest is is, uh, a Sadducee, and he is in the Sanhedrin, and he doesn't believe in angels. And Luke wants us to know that Stephen... uh, They saw his face like the face of an angel right before all the Sanhedrin. Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit. He reflects Jesus Christ very powerfully. That that his face appeared like that of an angel. From Luke's perspective means Stephen appeared like one who stands in the very presence of God. That's what angels do. And Moses... Went up on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. And when he came down from the mountain after he'd been with God, his face glowed. It says his face shone. There was something about the glory of God that was reflected in Moses. It was different than everybody else. There was something about Stephen that was like that. He reflected Christ so powerfully that his face was like the face of an angel. I've never seen a face like that. So I want to consider a few lessons as we close up our passage this morning. The first lesson is this. Good churches face real problems. That's probably pretty obvious. I just like to remind us. It's not surprising. Um, But just, you know, think about this. God was just blessing the socks of this church. They just kept growing. They kept growing. Had problems because they were growing so fast. Challenges, real, real challenges. People not treated fairly sometimes. Maybe it was intentional, maybe it wasn't. People get hurt. People get misunderstood. Sometimes people are tempted not to forgive. And 
Good churches face real problems, and problems are normal. And Jesus said, you know what? In this world, we're going to have troubles. And healthy, growing churches have troubles. Second lesson, leadership can make an eternal difference. This is what really attracts me to leadership. What I do can make an eternal difference. This is true of individual. It's true of a leader, but it's, it's true of you as a leader because you have to lead yourself. And, and what you do can have an eternal difference. The way you live, the decisions you make, how you spend your time can have an eternal difference. Now, what we see in Acts chapter 6 is this church on mission, and they're, they're hitting on all eight cylinders, and then this problem arises, and thousands of people are, are uh, sort of in turmoil, and it has to be solved. And if they're not careful, the leaders could step off and get sidetracked, and it could take a lot of energy and a lot of time to pull this thing back together. And they, they, they made good choices, and they delegated, and they kept the church right on track. They kept the church right on mission. And uh, we see in Acts chapter 6 that more and more people just kept coming to faith. That's what, that's what Luke, the writer, is helping us to see, is how the church just stayed on its mission. Third lesson, healthy leaders delegate both authority and responsibility to other qualified leaders. It's just a simple observation. Um, I think Acts 6 is a great example for churches. Leaders must delegate authority and responsibility to others. Not just anyone, but to people who are qualified and ready to step up. Um, and, you know, it can't all be about one, peop- one person or a few people in charge. If leadership is delegated. Four, God gives favor to spiritually healthy churches on mission. It doesn't mean that God takes away problems. I think American Christians just think this, you know, what I really want is I want God to take away my problems. I want to be happy. I want to live in peace. I want to be healthy. I want everybody in my family to be healthy. And life is not that way. And God didn't promise that. But God gives favor to spiritually healthy churches on mission. Um. God's favor is his grace, it's his strength, it's endurance, it's his power. And by the way, the same is true for an individual. God will give you his grace, his strength, his power as as you face challenges. Uh, Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God. Stay on course. Stay on mission. His priority, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness Stay on course, and all these things will be added. The things that you need, not the things that you want. He will provide all that you need. And there are times I wish he'd provide for you all that you want. But sadly, it doesn't always happen. Number, number five, the enemy hates a thriving, healthy church. The enemy, I'm referring to the evil one. I'm referring to Satan, who was a liar and a deceiver. And he hates to see Jesus honored. And we ought not to be surprised by uh, spiritual warfare. And one of our growth groups has been focusing on spiritual warfare. And I think it's been really cool and a lot of insight about how the enemy operates. Um, But he does not like to see a thriving, healthy church. Nor does he like to see a thriving and healthy individual Christian. And one of the things that we saw here in Acts chapter 6, by the way, it was the enemy who was behind and stirring up and inciting people at the time of the crucifixion. And um, the same thing is happening in Acts 6 with Stephen. And people are, the crowds are incited to, to almost like to riot and the Sanhedrin, their minds are totally closed off. They're blinded to the whole thing. The enemy is at work in this as well. It's not going to stop the church. It's not going to stop God. Number six, expect success in ministry to bring challenges from the inside the church as well as from outside the church. And this is just a summary of Acts 6. They're going to have challenges inside. They're going to have challenges outside. It's going to be true of you as an individual too. True of you and your family. You're going to have challenges within. Sometimes it's obedience issues with kids. Sometimes it's distraction. Sometimes it's health issues. 
We don't want health problems. I agree with you. But sometimes we have to deal with them. And sometimes it's from without. Um, but when you walk with God to see the, the cause of Christ advance, you can expect there will be challenges. And here's what I want to say. God's church can handle all the challenges that come its way. And I want to say to you, you can handle any challenge that comes your way as you walk with Christ. Okay? Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the church, and I thank you for what we learn in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 6 this morning. Give us wisdom. Enable us to walk in the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to keep focus on advancing your kingdom. Give us strength. Give us endurance. Because sometimes life is really hard. And I know there are people in this room who have had some really difficult situations. And I have no way to explain them. And yet we have hope. We have you. We have the Holy Spirit to provide strength, to provide comfort, to encourage us when we need encouragement. Help us to walk with you. Help us to live for you just one day at a time. Lord, as I'm reminded in Acts 6 of the potential conflicts sometimes that happen in the church, help us to be kind and compassionate to one another. Help us to be forgiving to one another just as God was in Christ forgiving us. You tell us to bear with one another. Remind us in our families, in our work environment, in our church that we need to bear at times with others because they have different views and different opinions and different perspectives. May we honor you with our response. For Jesus' sake, amen.